like you to turn to 2 Timothy chapter 1. Our text this morning is going to be verses 6, 7, and 8 of 2 Timothy chapter 1. I'd like to read verses 1 through 14 with you just to give it its context this morning. And then we'll zero in just on those three verses, verses 6, 7, and 8, for the sermon. 2 Timothy 1 begins, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, according to the promise of life in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my beloved son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. I thank God whom I serve with a clear conscience, the way my forefathers did, as I constantly remember you in my prayers night and day, longing to see you, even as I recall your tears, so that I may be filled with joy. For I am mindful of the sincere faith within you, which first dwelt in your grandmother, Lois, and your mother, Eunice, and I am sure that it is in you as well. And for this reason, I remind you to kindle afresh the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and of love and of discipline or a sound mind. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity, but now has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher. For this reason, I also suffer these things. But I'm not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I'm convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. Retain the standard of sound words which you have heard from me in the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us the treasure which has been entrusted to you. Let's face it. It is not easy to be a Christian. I have thought about this a lot. And you might think, well, you're a pastor. Of course it's going to be hard for you 
You're different than everybody else. You've got a really different job. No, I think being a Christian, no matter what we do, no matter where we work, being a Christian is not easy, is it? Being a Christian puts you in an exclusive club. I don't like to use that word, but really, only other Christians can really understand what I'm going to try to communicate to you this morning. It's not fashionable to be a Christian. It's not popular. It's not politically correct. Neighbors can look on us with suspicion. Relatives don't want us over, or at least if we do, don't talk about your faith. Christian politicians are berated for their conservative views. Christian teachers are muzzled in the public schools so that they cannot talk about God or Jesus Christ or the Bible or prayer. Not in specific terms. To open a conversation with a total stranger about God, how hard is that? Most often you can't even get two sentences out before they shut you off or look away or give you some signal, I don't want to hear that. And yet we stand up here and preach, go, go share the gospel. How hard is this? It is hard. You know, it's, it's just a reality of life that I have come to. And even in my own thinking about being a Christian, how hard is it to think about hell? You can't, you can't divorce God's judgment from the idea of salvation. We're saved because of our sin. And if we didn't get saved, where would we be? We would be judged by God in hell for eternity. That's what the scriptures in the New Testament teach. How popular is that? Even Christians today, who I would consider to be solid evangelical Christians in most other ways, are abandoning the whole idea of hell. I'm reading now that people are so disgruntled or ashamed of the idea that God is going to judge anybody for eternity that I can't talk about that part of God before anyone. And in fact, I'm going to change my views a little bit so that I'm going to believe that a person, after they die, they'll get a second chance. Because God just, I can't believe God is that way. I can't reconcile the love of God and the judgment of God together. And it affects us. I don't like telling others about the judgment of God because I literally am afraid of how they're going to respond to me. They're, they're going to reject the whole idea, or they're going to get mad, or they're going to do something. To have a biblical worldview in today's society, to actually believe that God created the earth, that there was a flood, that God wrote a book and gave it to us, we're in the minority. We may not think so. We might lead you know, little tight lives where we are here, but get out there. We are in the minority. Even a lot of Christian colleges are abandoning the six-day creation, the biblical account of creation, because of pressure academically to, um, to change and to teach what the world views as truth, although they reject the concept of truth, too.
But you know what? This is nothing new. We may think that in the year 2013 that we are unique in our being the minority, that we are unique in the world's opinion of us, that you know, as time has gone off, it's worse now than it was before. Not really true. This is nothing new. Nothing has changed. Jesus said, if the world hates you, understand that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. Nobody wants to be hated. And yet, this is the difficulty of being a Christian. The world will hate me. Jesus said, if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they would keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know the one who sent me. In the year 1899, I've shared this with you before, in the country of China, there was a group of Chinese nationalists known to the Western world as boxers. And they began a sweeping campaign of terror against officials of foreign governments in China, against Christian missionaries in China, and even against some Chinese Christians who had become believers in Christ. This unfortunate historic episode is known as the Boxer Rebellion. There's one account of a Christian mission station in China that was surrounded and overtaken by the boxers. And you can read about this. The terrorists sealed off all the exits around the building and started to march people out of the building. And the only door that was open, in front of that door, they laid a, a wooden cross so that as you stepped out of the door, you had to walk on the cross. And in essence, deny your faith. So the first seven students out of the building walked out and sidestepped the cross and did not step on it, and they were let go. Everybody knew what was at stake here. And the eighth person out of the building was a young woman who would not sidestep the cross, or excuse me, would not walk on the cross. I said it backwards. And so she sidestepped the cross and would not step on it. And uh, one of the men picked up his gun and fired and killed her on the spot. And the next 92 students who were in that mission station also sidestepped the cross, and every one of them was shot dead as they walked out of the building. I don't know what I would have done, to be honest. I don't know if any of us will ever be in that situation where it's deny faith, deny your faith and live, or don't deny Christ and die. It's not impossible, I suppose, that that could happen here at some point in our country, that we'll face that dangerous type of persecution in our lifetime. 
But the fact remains that being a Christian is not the popular thing, and it calls for courage. It calls for conviction. If we're not willing to give our lives for this, then why are we even doing it? What's the point? If we're not going to be willing to stand up for our faith, to be absolutely convinced, as Paul said, I suffer these things, I'm not ashamed because I know whom I have believed. And I am convinced that he will keep his promise to the end. In Psalm 40, David said, I have proclaimed glad tidings of righteousness in the great congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips. O Lord, you know, I have not hidden your righteousness within my heart. I've spoken of your faithfulness and of your salvation. I have not concealed your loving kindness and your truth from the great congregation. Could we capture some of that? So that we don't hide what's What's in us? Psalm 71, verses 15 and 16 say, My mouth shall tell of thy righteousness and of thy salvation all day long. I do not know the sum of them. I will come with the mighty deeds of the Lord God. I will make mention of thy righteousness and thine alone. Psalm 119, verse 46 says, I will also speak of thy testimonies before kings and shall not be ashamed. Are we ashamed? Are we? Courage is an extremely important quality in the Christian's life. Even if you as a believer or I as a believer am articulate, able to share the gospel, able to preach, able to say clearly what we believe, gifted in, in that type of thing. If there is no courage, it'll never be spoken. I mean, it's one thing for me to stand up here and speak to you, because pretty much everybody in this room is going to resonate with what I say, preaching to the choir, so to speak. And you're all going to nod your heads all through this and say, yep, 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 I believe this, I agree with that. But what about out there? What about my next door neighbor? What about the person behind the counter at the store? What about the bank teller? What about the taxi driver? What about the guy in the office next to mine? What about the guy that I'm swinging a hammer with? What about the person, all the people that God has surrounded us with? Are we ashamed? If we are, we're going to refuse to speak when the time is right. And the shame will shackle us and hold us down. And honestly, that's what, exactly what Satan would have. He walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And I'm afraid he's got some of us in his mouth, in his chewing. And it's hampering our ability First Peter 4.16, we just read it in our responsive reading, says, If anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not feel ashamed. This isn't just something that 
you know, we, we think about and say, oh, we ought, we ought not to be ashamed of this. We ought to have, it's a mandate. It's something that God calls us to do. Let him not feel ashamed. But in that name, let him glorify God. 2 Timothy 2.15, we didn't get down that far in the passage. Paul says, be diligent to present yourselves approved of God as workmen who do not need to be ashamed. Handling accurately the word of truth. Romans 1.16 says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. What is this, what is shame? What are we talking about? It really is a feeling, isn't it? It's an emotion. It's something that we can feel but not necessarily describe in concrete terms, but it affects how we act. Just simple definitions from the dictionary. Shame is a painful feeling of humiliation or distress caused by the consciousness of wrong or foolish behavior. So shame can come to us when we sin, when we do something wrong and we feel bad about it, we feel humiliated by it. It's also a painful emotion caused by a strong sense of guilt, embarrassment, unworthiness, or disgrace. An emotion in which the self is perceived as defective, unacceptable, or fundamentally damaged. Is that what we are? Is that what God has done in your life when he saved you? Are we damaged goods? Are we unacceptable? What do we have to be ashamed of? Shame really comes by thinking that we're bad or wrong in some sense. So what is it that's bad about God? What is it that's wrong with God taking you out of the miry clay and setting your feet on a rock and putting a new song in your mouth, even praise to your God. Nothing. That's something to rejoice about, something to proclaim to people. And yet somehow we still get this feeling of shame, don't we? When we approach people with that. It comes from a root word that means to cover up or to hide some synonyms are disgraced, embarrassed, dishonored, humiliated, guilty, mortified, uncomfortable. And in these three verses in 2 Timothy, Paul knew exactly what Timothy was going to be up against. It was a young church. I mean, we, we talk about church now, and there's been thousands of years of history, of church history. So you say church, people know what you're talking about at least, you know. This was brand new. Timothy was, was a young man who was going into a city that was thoroughly pagan, full of idol worship, and was preaching a, a gospel that they hadn't heard before. And Paul knew, because of his own experience, what Timothy was going to face which was basically rejection and persecution. And so he's writing to try to encourage him. And Paul is calling for Timothy to develop an attitude that says, I don't care what the world is going to do to me. I don't care 
what the world is going to say to me. Whatever God has told me to do and to be, that by his strength I will do and I will be. And specifically, Paul mentions it three times. In verse 8, he says, Do not be ashamed of the testimony of Christ. In verse 12, he says, I am not ashamed because I know whom I have believed. And in verse 16, The Lord grant mercy to the house of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. And so it's a theme that keeps repeating itself. And it's something I think God wants us to know. Most of us have to admit, like I said, that we are ashamed when it comes to our our testimony. I mean, we've had evangelistic campaigns here at this church. We've had evangelism classes where we've invited people to come and kind of learn the maybe some practical ways to share the gospel with people. And those classes come and those classes go. And how many people really do it? I'm as guilty as you. Maybe we justify it by saying, I don't have the gift of evangelism. Yes, you do. Are you saved? Do you know Christ as your Savior? Yes? Then you are an evangelist. You're a signpost. You've got Christ written across your forehead. Every time you do something in obedience to God, you are a testimony of his glory. Why not open your mouth? What are we really afraid of? What's going to happen? If, you know, if, if the country keeps going in the direction that it's going, and our government starts to restrict what we can and can't do, what we can and can't say, what's, what's the worst that's going to happen? I don't know. Are they going to kill me? Homosexuality is going to become a huge issue. It's already become a huge issue, and that's going to that's keep going. Eventually, I know this country is going to make it illegal for us to say anything about homosexuality publicly. It's coming. So what's going to happen if I stand up here and I preach Romans chapter 1? Are cops going to walk through the door and arrest me? What if they did? Seriously. They can throw me in jail. They can't really torture me, I guess, in this country legally. But I suppose that could happen. And one of the scary things about this bombing in Boston is reading all the rhetoric about the Miranda rights being read to the second bomber. And everybody's kind of on the, on the side of the fence that it was a mistake to read that young man his rights. He's a citizen of the United States. And... You know, maybe they shouldn't have, because they would have been able to question him and interrogate him. But what's going to happen if they change the law? And now you're not going to be read your Miranda rights. He's, he's deemed an enemy of the country, so we can interrogate him and use whatever means necessary to interrogate him. What's going to, what, is, what is that going to mean if you extrapolate that out? Are Christians going to become the enemy of the, of the country at some point? Are we going to lose our rights? I don't know. What's the worst that can happen? They can kill me, right? They can put a bullet through my head and they can kill me. Then where am I? Yay! 
I'm there. I don't have to suffer with this anymore. That's the worst that can happen. What are we ashamed of, really? Why aren't we so free and quick to look for opportunities to share the gospel with people? I don't know what it is. I really think that like, Satan has just thrown a wet blanket over this and made us feel afraid of something that we really shouldn't feel afraid of. I think most of us wonder how our perception of being a fundamentalist Christian really flies in the face of our friends, our coworkers, our family, the people that we know, our neighbors. They think we're crazy, maybe. But you've got to admit the risks today, they're not the same as the Apostle Paul was facing. His were far worse. Timothy's were far worse. And yet we're cowering in the corner. Probably the best-known illustration of somebody being ashamed of Christ in the New Testament was Peter. Peter, the bold one. Peter, the one who stuck his foot in his mouth. Peter, the one who was first to speak and then think. Always the leader. Always the first one there. Always the first one to say something. When it came down to it, he ran. And on the night that Jesus was betrayed, three times... Somebody pointed to him and said, you know him. And three times he says, I do not. I don't know him. Stop saying that I know him. I don't. And he got upset and angry in his denial of Christ. Maybe we wouldn't go that far. I don't know. Peter's an easy target. But how many of us would have done the exact same thing? Peter was restored and forgiven and used greatly by God, he wrote part of the New Testament. In fact, in the book of Acts, his preaching, some of his preaching was the most bold preaching in all of the New Testament. Read through his, his preaching in Acts chapter 2, in front of hundreds and hundreds of people. He stood up and said, this is Jesus Christ, whom you crucified. Believe in him. And somehow he got that boldness back. We shouldn't be surprised at this either. Jesus said it many, many times to his disciples. He made the cost of following him very clear. I don't know why we don't get it. Whoever shall deny me before men, he says in Matthew 10, I will also deny him before my Father in heaven. How could we be quiet if we are a follower of Christ and we really believe the things that we say we believe? Mark chapter 8 Verse 38 says, whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him. That's not what I want. I don't know, one who refuses to openly proclaim Christ? Is he giving evidence that maybe he doesn't know Christ to begin with? Jesus goes on in Matthew 10, he says, Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he's not telling us to not love our parents. He's saying there is a priority structure here. If your parents don't know the Lord, and you do, are you going to follow them or Christ? He who loves son or daughter more than me 
is not worthy of me. You may have children who don't know the Lord. Are you going to follow them or Christ? He who has found his life, meaning he's come to Christ, he's repented of his sin, God has entered into his life, he who has found his life shall lose it. There's a cost to being a believer in Christ. And he who has lost his life for Christ shall find it. There is eternal reward and blessing and hope in what God has promised to us. One mark of a true disciple, I think, that he, is that he's willing to put his life on the line for his faith, for the Lord's sake. So just realize that. And I think Paul realized that with Timothy. And this is what he was doing. He was injecting something into Timothy's mind that says, hey, you are going to lose your zeal. You are going to feel ashamed. Let me give you something that's going to help with this. And so what does he say in verse 6? For this reason, I remind you to do what? Kindle afresh. Stir up the coals so that there's a flame again. The fire's dying. Add some wood. Add some fuel. Get it going. It's going to go out on its own. It will happen with us too. Our zeal for God will go out on its own. Sin will take over. Our own mind will take over. And unless we inject something into it on a regular basis, it's, it's not going to keep fueling itself. So what does that mean practically for us? Well, think of it this way. Go back and remind yourself about when you were saved. How many times has God said in the Bible to remind yourself of things that he has done? I mentioned this morning already about the Passover. The Passover was designed by God for the people of Israel so they wouldn't forget what God did because generations will come, generations will go. And the further away you get removed from that original event, the less meaning it has. And so you have to remind yourself. When's the last time you thought through the time, the events, the people, the emotion of what happened to you when you met Christ? Maybe it's been too long. Go home. Write out on a piece of paper what happened. Remind yourself of what happened. We have every single Sunday night an opportunity for us to give testimonies so that we can encourage each other. Why don't we take that opportunity and share how we came to Christ with each other? At least then we'd be practicing and be a little bit more familiar and comfortable with what we would say if we do have the opportunity to meet with somebody who isn't saved to share what happened with us. Sharing your own personal testimony of God's grace in your life is one of the most powerful tools you have in your toolbox for witnessing. It's not just remembering this verse or remembering that verse and making it fit in, into a conversation. It's sharing what God did with you. So rehearse it in your mind. That's what Paul tells Timothy to do. I remind you to kindle afresh Stir up those coals, the gift that's in you. What is that gift that Paul is speaking of? Specifically, it was the gift that Paul, God had given to Timothy of preaching, but what has God given us as gifts? If he says, I'm reminding you to stir up the gift, generally speaking, what has God given to us as a gift? Life? We are physically alive? That's a gift of God. 
We're fearfully and wonderfully made. He breathed the breath of life into us. Eternal life. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That's a gift of God. Not of works, lest any man should boast. It's a gift of God that he gave to you. He gave you physical life. He gave you eternal life. He gave you abundant life. Jesus said, I have come to give them life and to give it to them more abundantly. And a spirit-filled life. At the end of... um, I'm going to turn to this one, Acts chapter 2. When Peter was done preaching that first sermon, that bold sermon, the men stood around and said, now what? What should we do? He says, when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart, and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins And God's going to do something. He's going to give something to you. What did he say? You're going to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit in your life. We have physical life, eternal life, abundant life, and a spirit-filled life. God is present with us every day. Kindle afresh those gifts, the gift that God has given to you. Like I said, for Timothy, the gift involved his preaching, and Paul laid his hands on him. As he says at the end of verse 6, kindle afresh the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. There was a time when Timothy was called by God to go preach. And Paul is telling him to be reminded of that. Stir that back up. Remember what God called you to do. What has God called us to do? Why did he save us? To be light. In a dark world, to be salt in a world that needs flavor. Remind yourself of that. Remind of what your calling is. Remind yourself of what your gift might be. Every one of us is gifted by the Spirit of God, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. What is your gift? Are you using it? Are you exercising it? And fan the flames of the gift, kindle it afresh. Get it going. Use it. Be involved. Acknowledge it. Give yourself to the Lord daily. Be willing to be used. Go back to the beginning. Fan the flames of your roots and get those embers hot again by reminding yourself of what God has done for you already. Kindle afresh. Rekindle the flame. Second, in verse 7, realize your resources. First, uh, 2 Peter 2, verse, sorry, 2 Peter 1, verse 3 says, Seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. Everything that we need to live life according to God's call has already been given to us. I think sometimes we feel like You know, I'm ashamed because I just don't think God has gifted me to be able to talk to people. That's, he he does that with other people, not with me. No, if God calls you to do something, he enables you to do that something. And he's already enabled all of us to do that something. He's given it to us, according to 2 Peter 1.3, everything that we need for life and for godliness has already been granted to us. He provided you salvation and spiritual life. 
He provided the Holy Spirit. He even provides help at the moment we need it. In Jesus' commissioning of his disciples, when he sent them out to go preach to the towns and surrounding area, in Matthew 10, he gave them a whole kind of a pep talk before they went. And in that pep talk, in verses 19 and 20, he says, don't worry. When you get into a situation and you don't know what to say, God will give you the words to say. It will be told you in that hour. What are we worried about? Speaking something wrong? Saying the wrong thing? How's that possible? Verse 7 of 2 Timothy 1 says, For God has not given us a spirit of timidity. Anytime we feel ashamed, anytime we feel fearful or shy, understand that that is not from God. That's from us. God doesn't give us that spirit. That comes from our flesh. It comes from our own thinking of ourselves more highly than we ought to think. I don't want to say this because I'm afraid of what people are going to think of me. You're thinking of yourself more than you're thinking of God is what it boils down to. It's a cowardly, shameful fear that comes from a weak, selfish character. It's self-driven. If we can get over that and get our minds on God, who is our strength, who gives us power, who gives us all the resources we need, then what difference does it make? We're not going to think that way. The spirit of timidity, it's the Greek word dahlia, it doesn't come from God. So at least when we feel that, when I feel that, when I'm at the door of my neighbor's house and I have an opportunity to share with him and I'm thinking, oh, I don't want to. That's not from God. And I need, I need to remember that's not from God. That's from me. But what has God given us? In this verse, three things. Spirit of power, spirit of love, and a spirit of a solid mind, sound mind, discipline. Power. That's the word dunamis in the Greek. You can hear the word dynamite in it. We know how powerful explosives are. Dynamic is another word that comes from that, that root word. It's a great force or energy. That's what God gives to us, and it's already been given to us. We don't need to pray for this. I don't know if you recall the prayer in Ephesians chapter 1. When Paul said, I thank my, um, I, for this reason I bow my knees to the Lord, and he, and he was praying that the Ephesian believers would have their eyes opened, that they would be enlightened, that they would understand what? I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know what is the hope of his calling what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe? The same power that raised Christ from the dead. That's what God has given to us. It's not that we need to pray for it. It's there. We just need to access it. And this is the power that allows us to be effective in our service and with people. God's given us that. Second, he's given us a spirit of love. Love, by its very nature, is selfless and others-oriented. It's the agape love that God demonstrated when he sent his own son to be our savior on the cross. Toward God, this love says, I will give my life and everything I have to serve you. 
toward others, it says, I will give myself away for you on your behalf. It's the right and proper attitude that we should have toward God. He demonstrated it for us. He put that love within our heart and expects us to behave that way. He's given us that spirit of love. It's part of the things that God has given to us pertaining to life and godliness. Third, he's given us a spirit of discipline or sound mind. Carries the meaning of even-keeledness, not extreme. We tend to go toward extremes in our responses to things sometimes. I hate this. I hate my life. Not really. We say those things. We kind of respond in, in extreme ways. But the spirit that God has given to us is an even-keeled spirit, which if you're talking to somebody else, you can see how that would be an effective means of communicating the gospel because you're not really afraid of an extreme response on your part. You're just going to share what you share. It allows one to enjoy success without becoming too proud, and it allows us to have failure without becoming bitter. It's an even-keeledness. He says in Romans 12:3, not to think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. It's an even thinking. It's recognizing who we are in Christ. We are a sinner saved by the grace of God. That's who we are. No more, no less. And this discipline helps us to order our priorities. If we're thinking right about God and we have a proper perspective of ourselves, then sharing the gospel and witnessing will be fit in there as a priority. A normal, natural priority of us being a Christian. And this is the spirit that God has given to us. So rekindle the flame. Go back and remember what's happened in your, in your spiritual life. And realize the resources that God has given to you and utilize them. The spirit of power, the spirit of love, and the spirit of a sound mind or discipline, evenness. And then lastly, resign yourself to suffering. Just expect it. You know, I don't... There's a lot of self-promoting preachers who promise lots of good things in the Christian's life, but nothing that comes from here. Actually, if you read the New Testament, how can you come to any other conclusion but to expect that if you're a Christian, you're going to suffer persecution? Paul even said it in this book, in chapter 3. All who live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. It's just true. And so, resign ourselves to it. Suffering should be expected. Historically, it's always been a part of the church. There's never been an era in which the church hasn't been persecuted at some time in its history. Paul, even as he was writing this letter, where was he? In jail? In Rome? He'd already been arrested. And here he is telling Timothy, don't be ashamed. Expect the suffering. Join with me in suffering. And you say, no, I don't like that idea. I'd rather be on vacation. To be associated with Christ or even with the Apostle Paul carried with it criticism, universal criticism in that day, frequent persecution. And again, we may not see it here in our country as, as clearly as we see it in the New Testament, but it shouldn't change our attitude toward it. In several places, the Word of God clearly says that suffering will be a part. We read that verse in, in uh, John 15 where Jesus says, if the world hated you, it, it's because it hated me first. Expect it. Don't marvel at these things. 
And even beyond that, suffering should be welcomed. And that may be different for us to think about. In Philippians chapter 2, Paul says, even if I'm being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and I share my joy with you. Even if I am suffering on your behalf, I'm still going to share joy. 2 Corinthians 6, in everything commending ourselves as servants of God in much endurance and afflictions, hardships, distresses, beatings, imprisonments, tumults, labors, sleeplessness, hunger. Paul says we commend ourselves to you in this. We are willing to do this for your sake. In Acts 5, Peter and John went away from the council rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer. That's what it says in Acts 5.41. And why should we feel this way? Because it serves to further the gospel. That's really it. Ephesians 3, Paul said, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ, for the sake of you Gentiles, so that the gospel could come to you. In Philippians 1, I want you to know that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. And in fact, he says, in prison, I've been able to share the gospel with the whole Praetorian Guard, and now they know. And he was still rejoicing in that, that God had brought him into that. And suffering should be seen as for the gospel. We can suffer for our own offenses, I know that. But uh, sometimes we suffer because of our own stupidity. How can we move from being ashamed of the gospel to being courageous and convicting and convincing and bold in our sharing the gospel and sharing our faith and our testimony with other people. Rekindle the flame, go back, write it out, read it, talk about it, remind yourself of what God did for you and, and bring back to mind the gifts that God has given to you. He's given you life, he's given you eternal life, he's given you abundant life, he's given you a spirit-filled life. Stir up those coals. Two, remember your resources and realize them. Take advantage of God's power, his love, and the ability to think clearly about things that he has given to you as a Christian. These are his gifts to you and his resources. Remember that they're there. This is not all you. God is going to be with you every step of the way. And then resign yourself to suffering. Just realize that it's going to happen. And if it does happen, check it off. God is using you. If it does happen... It's going to happen because God is going to further the gospel through you. Don't be ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Let's pray. Father, I do pray that you would help me first to be willing to do what I say, what I'm even preaching up here this morning, to be willing to be an answer to my own prayer that you would bring workers into the harvest and that you would use us to bring the gospel to many. I pray for our church, Lord. I pray for us as members at Fellowship Bible Church that you would just ignite in us a new passion and zeal for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, we enjoy being Christians. I enjoy being saved. I love the, 
knowing you and knowing who you are and, and enjoying your faithfulness and your righteousness and your holiness and your mercy toward me every day. Lord, help us to not just rejoice in these walls, but to take the message out where we go and bring people in. I pray our church would grow. I pray, Father, that there would be many, even in this next month, who would come in to this room, hear the preaching of the word of God, and be saved. I pray that there would be many of us who would have opportunities to share the gospel with people that we know, and I pray for fruit from that, that there would be people who do come to know Jesus Christ. Help us, Lord, to be willing to be used. Your kingdom is like the grain of a mustard seed. When it's planted, it's very small, but it grows into a flourishing tree. Your kingdom is like leaven, which starts off very small, but it permeates into all of the dough and grows. And we know one day, Lord, your kingdom will cover the entire face of this planet and that every knee will bow to you. Every tongue will confess the name of Jesus Christ. Help us, Lord, to be a part of that army, to be a willing servant in what you're doing in the lives of people in this area, in Methuen, in Lawrence, in Salem, Pelham, and other towns where we're from. And I pray, Lord, that our church would be a, a light, a true light of your goodness and your grace. Help us, Lord, to live for you and to be willing to do that. And we pray in Christ's name. I was thinking of the song, uh, I Know Whom I Have Believed.